there is a benefit to the professionals who earn their money in that space from wanting us to think that it's complicated because then, of course, we'll pay their fees. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Skorupski, and I'm looking at Dr. Yuval Bar-Or. Hi, Yuval. Hi, Kim. Great to be here. Well, yeah, you're here again because, folks, Yuval Bar-Or, this is his third visit to the Faculty Factory Podcast, and there is no one I know of in the galaxy who does what Dr. Bar-Or does for the academic medical community. He's our financial expert. In fact, Dr. Bar-Or is a full professor of practice right here at Johns Hopkins University Cary Business School, author of at least seven books or more. You can check out all of his wonderful wisdom on the pillarsofwealth.com. It's one word, pillarsofwealth.com. Fantastic um, website with his recorded episodes of the podcast right there on his website, all of his book descriptions, lots of seminars and workshops. And you've all, gosh, we've been working with him for years now here in the School of Medicine at Hopkins. He gives lots of wonderful seminars and workshops focused specifically toward academic faculty members and physicians who, and scientists who we don't obviously learn this stuff as part of our curriculum so he's really found a great niche and is providing really valuable wisdom to us. So thanks for being here again, Yuval. And those of you who are new to the podcast and want to check out some of Dr. Bar-Or's older episodes, he was with us years ago, back episode number 64, to talk to you about finance basics. And then up, um, episode number 149, financial literacy. So you'll find a couple episodes if you just want to search on the facultyfactory.org website. You can go there and see the rundown as well. But, okay, you've all, we've got three great topics today. Knowing your net worth, understanding investing basics, and then planning for retirement. So why don't you just take it away? Give us the high-ish, mid-view level of, for, and let us know, what do we need to know and what's important? Take it away, Yuval. Great. Thank you, Kim. So let's begin with knowing your net worth. Probably useful to define some terms here as we go along. Net worth is one of the fundamental concepts in financial planning. It can be measured at a personal level. So us as individuals, what's my net worth? What's your net worth? Or it can be measured at the household or family level which of course would include you, your spouse, children, uh, dependent parents, elderly parents, and so on. Effectively, net worth is the fancy economist word for nest egg. That is our nest egg. It's the total amount of value, financial value, we accumulate over our lifetime. We rely on that nest egg or net worth to support all our financial needs, including through retirement and our various family members' financial needs. And that can include paying for college education for children, supporting elderly parents, and so on. Net worth is a simple calculation. We simply take the total value of our assets, everything we own that has value, like a house and the total dollar amount in our 401k or 403b plan, et cetera. And we subtract from that the total amount of our debts, everything we owe to others. It could be school debt. It could be mortgage debt. It could be credit card debt and so on. So that net difference between those two quantities, assets and debts, is the nest egg at any point in time. So if you 
think about taking a camera out and just snapping a snapshot of assets and debts. The difference between those two at any instant is the net worth. And the name of the game in financial planning is to build that net worth over time. We want to see a steady, reliable increase in net worth because that's setting us up for achieving a number that's big enough that it can support us uh, in dignified fashion through all of our family's financial needs. Well, I love two words you just said, dignified fashion. I like to always say, I want to be kept in the manner to which I've grown accustomed. And that's a, not a very good manner. I kind of try to always keep things on the on the low level there. But what is kind of scary about this is that in that calculation, total value of our assets minus our total debts is almost the way I'm thinking it very naively, I'm sure, is that my debts can be the same or somewhat predictable. Like I know what my mortgage is. I know what my credit card bill is. I know what my utilities are. Um, those things are kind of known to me. But what is sometimes unknown to me is the value of my assets because I'm, you know, I don't want to ever go on to know. It used to be, um, you know, Fidelity at Hopkins and now we went to TIAA Craft, but it, I frankly don't even know how to get into TIAA Craft. So I don't even, I can't check, unfortunately. But not knowing the value of my assets and like this real estate market roller coaster ring, how do I, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And, you know, the unknowability sometimes of the assets and thinking, oh, I got a pretty good egg. Oh, my egg just got smaller. Oh, no. You know, how, how do we manage that anxiety and figure that out? There's several thoughts come to mind. One of them is we can choose lower anxiety by deciding where to put our money. So we can choose to put it into investments that are less volatile or more volatile. That's a very personal decision has to do with our comfort level with risk. Some folks who are listening may be familiar with the terms risk aversion or risk tolerance. These are the the relevant terms here in trying to get a handle on how comfortable we are with risk. So one way to, to, to attenuate the roller coaster ride is to just put our assets in lower risk investments or destinations. The challenge there in, in our efforts to build a big enough nest egg the main challenge is that those less volatile assets also have, on average, lower growth rates. So the expected nest egg size that we can aspire to is going to be lower if we're going to take less risk. So each of us has to find that comfortable medium where we're comfortable enough with the risk that's being taken, and it's setting us up successfully, on average, through the volatility that we're going to experience. And that volatility, you're exactly right, is is everywhere. It's in all of the different risky assets we choose to invest in. Real estate tends to be less volatile than investments in stocks and investments in small stocks. In particular, when I say small stocks, I mean um, small company stocks, new startups. They tend to be the most volatile. So we make we can make a decision about where we want to be in that uh, risk spectrum. Another thing that's important to note is that. The, the volatility we're seeing is near-term volatility. It's, it's what's driving us crazy because we're seeing these numbers go up and down in our TIA accounts or wherever we're holding assets. And um, so it's important to note that we don't want to be distracted or panic based on what's happening to us in the near term. We have to always stay focused on the farther destination, right? So this beacon we're looking at is not tomorrow or next week or next month or even next year, it's 10 years, 15, 20, 30 years down the road. And from when we take that perspective, the science tells us that the periods of volatility will cancel each other out in a sense. The noise in those will cancel each other out, and we should be able to ride the general trend that's in there 
And that trend is an upward trend. It has been for many decades. Mm -hmm. There are no guarantees. There may be deeper recessions and deeper troughs in the values of our assets, whether it's real estate or stocks or whatever. But generally, there is good financial theory to support this notion that if we if our horizon is long enough and we don't panic and start selling when the the assets go down, uh, then we, we we should be in good shape. And, and the type of person who embraces that approach, the well-proven approach, is known as a passive investor. This is a person who does not chase the fads, who doesn't try to time the market by selling when markets are down, because inevitably we'll do that when markets are down. So we're selling low. And then we'll wait and wait and wait because we're so worried about the risk. And then finally, we'll buy when everybody else is telling us, hey, you're a fool. You're not getting in the market. And we'll buy at the peak. So we'll buy, we'll sell low and buy high, which is exactly the opposite of what we want to do. So psychologically, the key is to remember that if you're a committed passive investor, you don't need to care about the near-term movements. It does not matter. And is that probably why... And, I, and thank you for grounding this in science. And so those of us, you know, we're in academic medicine, we're all about the science. So that to me is reassuring right there that Dr. Yuval Bar or is reminding us this, that this principle is grounded in sound theory and decades of research and trends. So is this probably why many of our retirement 403Bs have those kind of age graded options where, you know, you say if you're 30 years to retirement versus 20 versus 10, you're going to that a level of aggressive investing, the split between stocks, bonds and mutual funds or whatever will be will be the pie shape will change depending on how close you are to retirement. So once you kind of have that level of set that level of comfort, you know, with your representative who's helping you at TI at Craft or Fidelity or whatever, you know, vehicle you're choosing will help gauge that. And then, like you said, you just, you don't touch it. Is That's probably why they have those kind of preset default packages, right? In a word, yes. These are known yeah. as age-based funds or life cycle funds. Yeah. Typically, you'll say, well, I'm anticipating um, retiring in between 2030 and 2035. You'll go to the fund that, that's labeled the 20, 2030 to 2035 age-based fund or life cycle fund, and you'll you'll direct your investments into that. Mm -hmm. And the folks behind the scenes who work at these financial services companies will be managing those. And over time, they will be gradually changing the profile, what you refer to as the shape of the pie. It's the pie's allocation percentages they're going to be changing from those riskier securities. Like I refer to small company stocks as being on the riskiest end of the spectrum or close to the riskiest end. And over time, they will be shifting from those riskier stocks to less risky stocks and then ultimately to bonds, which are generally considered to be less risky than stocks mm -hmm. and so on. So they will be doing for us what we would normally be doing ourselves if we choose to, to do it yourself, which is also an option. Uh, they make it convenient, based funds. As always, it's important to look at the fees that are associated with the different funds. And, and typically an age-based fund will have a slightly higher fee than individual funds we could invest in ourselves. And we could change those allocations ourselves over time. So yes, we could do it ourselves. Uh, it's important to always look at what are the fees, right? That's one of the first questions you should ask whenever you're signing up for any new account, new employer, whatever it is, you go in there and you check out the different investment options. Hopefully they don't have 500 because that can be overwhelming. You're looking for, again, as a passive investor, it's easy because there are lots of things you're not even going to consider. You're only going to consider the highly diversified, indexed 
which means they're tracking very well-known benchmarks within their asset classes, and uh, you're looking at the fees. Mm -hmm. They want to choose the ones that have the lowest fees. So uh, typically, the age-based funds will have slightly higher fees than if you were doing it yourself. Yeah. So I've got a financial planner, and once a year, we do like a, a checkup. And he takes control of my computer. It's all virtually. And I give him the permissions and I can watch him plucking around and looking at this, looking at that, assessing this, assessing that, move some things over. But you're right. He always starts with um, no fees. So when we move things around, it's to the, the no fees, no cost, whatever. Um, and again, I'm obviously completely ignorant in this, but that is my level of um oversight or knowledge about what happens i sit there like you know like some kind of zombie and watch my a mouse zooming around my computer and yes he's talking through all right we're gonna do this for that does that sound right to you it's gonna look like this do i have your approval to press buy i'm like yeah i don't know <laughs> so so that that's happening and and again so all right so pretend you know we're super super busy clinicians and we're in the or we're generating revenue we're trying to write grants trying to write papers you know supervising trainees teaching people building programs. I don't have any, you know, time to do this, figure this out. So so pretend someone's just putting this on autopilot. They meet with somebody at TIA, Craft Fidelity, whatever the, the vehicle is. They say yes, they click, whatever, that's kind of out of their mind. They just kind of let that rock and roll. What can we do personally on the other end of that equation? Well, the other half of it, like the, the debt part, like what can we practically do that doesn't require a lot of knowledge about because I'm of course now I'm thinking that if I'm going to invest in stocks and bonds that's something I always want to do but I never do because that's so confusing to me like if I were to talk to you for after 20 minutes my eyes would be glazing over and I'd feel like I'm so brain dead right now I can't even understand like what you're talking about you're so smart but I can manage some things like debt so what I'm getting at is what are the things that we can do as scientists and clinicians on a everyday easily manageable side to grow that egg and to make that net difference bigger so the first item that's important to note is that their fees can come from various sources or they arise from various sources one of them is the set of fees that companies the funds we invest in so the individual companies that manage the funds, like Vanguard and Straight Street and so on, uh, Schwab has their own line. There are lots of uh, companies that offer their lines of mutual funds and exchange-rated funds. So they will charge us money for managing those funds for us. The passively managed funds are the ones that will come with the lowest fees because it takes the least effort for them. So that's why we want those. The other layer of fees is what do we pay our advisors? And that can matter a lot, too, because they may charge us a reasonable amount or an unreasonable amount. And it turns out that if you just look at the math, again, coming back to the science and the math, uh, and I should add that while I've, I use those terms, there is no rocket science in any personal financial planning. That The level of math you need to, you, plural, need to understand any financial decision is 10th grade math. That is it, right? There is nothing more complicated than what we need to do. The, the fees turn out to be important, and, and in particular, even fees that are only 1% are actually very onerous for us. Because if you go through an exercise, again, very simple exercise, I do this on the website, there's some examples of saying, if fees are 1%, I'm investing uh, X amount, let's say $1,000 every year for 30 years, I can earn a return of 8%. If the fees are 1%, 
what's the impact on my portfolio of paying fees? And it turns out that the loss to our portfolio, the hypothetical nest egg in this example, could be on the order of 15 to 20% of our entire nest egg if every year we're paying 1% fees, which leaves a lot of people scratching their heads and saying, how is that possible? 1% seems so small. How did 15% exit my bank account and end up in someone else's bank account, the advisor or broker, whoever was helping me? But the math doesn't lie, right? It's because of the effects of compounding. We won't get into details now, but uh, anyone can choose to replicate uh, those results and or look at what I've shared online. Um, and if the fees instead are 2%, then we may be saying goodbye to 30 to 40% of our nest egg over 30 years, which is a staggering number, an absolutely staggering number, which is devastating to us. Imagine what each of us could do if we had, we had that 30% of assets back when we were ready to retire. And that could be hundreds of thousands, in some cases, a million dollars or more. All right. Stop with the 10th grade math. That is totally freaking me out. Um, I was like sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, what do I pay my advisor? And fortunately, I'm like, okay, good. Jim Brennan, he's a good guy. I gave him like $2,000 like eight years ago. And that's all I've ever given him. Um, if anybody wants my advisor, and they let me let me know. I'll, I'll hook you up with him. He's a great guy. But that's mind-boggling. And that's the kind of stuff where I think it's so important that the other part of that calculation of figuring out our total debts is so important because this is where the nickel and diming can happen to us where we don't realize this compound interest and how these things add up. And I'm my brain right away went to this thing. I got BritBox. I don't know how I ended up wanting to watch you know, Pride and Prejudice for the umpteenth time. And, and I had to go through BritBox and get a membership for it. And I think I only watched that channel a couple times and I'm getting, and I'm sure I'm getting charged for it. I know that I am, but all those kind of hidden expenses that we like, eh, 1%, that's nothing, or $4.99 or whatever on Netflix, that's nothing. Those things add up. And that's where the debt, when you have these, like use these little apps and tools, you realize, holy moly, what am I spending? And where's all my money going? Why am I, if I'm a physician, if I'm making all this much money, how come I'm not loaded? Well, it's because that ratio is off that you're you got your, you know, your medical school loans and you got the big mortgage and the cars and the this is and the that's. And that's where we can go askew when we don't are not mindful. If we can't manage the big stuff, but at least we can manage kind of that the small, like wasteful stuff, right? Right. True. And that's a great segue to sort of bring us back to talking about debt. Uh, might be useful for the audience to know that I grew up in a medical family. So I saw these struggles from the inside, and that was what ultimately motivated me to do this. And, and uh, the objective was always, let's provide that science-based, objective, unbiased facts, uh, not be um, distracted by sales agendas or anything like that, but just provide the facts. And as I said before, and I'll emphasize again, none of it is rocket science. Everybody could invest for themselves if they just go through a little bit of reading or sit in a classroom and learn this stuff. We teach uh, middle school kids some of these tools. So we certainly, anyone who's listening to this podcast has more than enough brain power to understand this. It's just a matter of being given it in a digestible fashion that, that's easy to relate to. So let's move on to debt. And I'm really glad you talked about the, the the importance of identifying where it is that we're spending without realizing and that those small numbers add up. So let's take your example. You're, you're subscribed or one is subscribed to some sort of uh, streaming service, music or, or movies or whatever it is. We pay $5 a month. Well, that's really $60 a year. And if we're doing that for 20 years, it's 60 times 20. And now we're talking actual money. Right? And that's it's important to think in those terms, because when we just 
are on auto drive and we're focused on patients and research and other things in our work and family, we forget that these things are automatically coming out of our accounts. And it's just this waterfall of small amounts that aggregate into a big amount of water falling off that to the edge of that waterfall on, on a longer term basis. So yes, those areas where we have control, we can just choose to not pay those things or consolidate them into one product that really does the job for us always advisable to do that. And that's part of why we recommend that people annually take a, a fresh look at their finances. That's part of what's known as the budgeting process. There we're looking at how much money is coming into the household, typically on an annual basis, and how much is leaving. So we're now focusing on, well, how much is leaving? What are our subscriptions? What are we paying? What's discretionary and what isn't? So this is a key keyword. Discretionary, all those things we, we do by choice non-discretionary, the things we have to pay. We can't choose not to pay our mortgage. We can't choose not to pay the car payment for that given month. So it's useful to label those items that are non-discretionary that we must pay, label them clearly in our budgeting process so that we always are able to reconstruct how much, what is the, the payment burden that we have? What are the expenses that we have that are non-negotiable that we have to be able to meet? Um, and that feeds into decisions like, well, how much cash should we hold on hand in case we have to meet three or six months of these expenses when we are disabled or for whatever reason, our income's interrupted. It's another dimension of financial planning that I wasn't planning on talking about today. All that information, of course, is on the website. Folks are welcome and encouraged to look at the budgeting process, the um, rainy day cash funds and so on. I, I do think that's an important element. Uh, so, when it comes to debts, it's important to distinguish between what we call good and bad debt. Now, of course, if you already have the debt, you're burdened with the debt. There's not much you can do about it other than seeking to refinance at lower rates if you can, consolidating um, lending products that might give you an advantage. You have to look at the details there. Uh, so the key at first is, is to only engage in good debt and never take on bad debt. What is an example of good debt? It's debt that we take to buy a home, right? If we don't own a home, we buy, we make, we find a good deal, we buy the home, we're living in it, we don't have to make rent payments to someone else, which is money just leaving the household. Instead, the payments we make are building equity gradually in the home. And after 30 years, we own a home, which may be worth hundreds of thousands, sometimes seven figures. That's a big repository of value. That's one of those big assets that contributes to our net worth. So that's a favorable reason to take on debt. We also get tax deductions and other things as homeowners. So Good example, that would be good debt. Another example of good debt would be presumably borrowing to go to school. You finish your undergraduate work, you decide you want to be a physician or a researcher, you pursue master's level education or you know, medical school, master's level education, PhD level education. What does that give you? It opens doors to higher levels of earnings for you. So you're taking on debt, but there is a commensurate return that you're looking at down the road where you're expecting that uh, there will be a reasonable return, that you will have access to higher income in the future, which will allow you to pay off that debt and end up ahead of the game. So those are examples of good debt. Bad debt, in contrast, would be something like going in an unnecessary long vacation around the world, three years, when two months might have been enough, um, and taking on personal loans just to finance that. Now, some people might argue and say, well, you know, sometimes you're burned out and you really need that. My argument would be early in your career, your prime earning years, you want to be using them for earning and gaining experience, investing in your own human capital, and not taking three years off when you could have taken two years off, that would, or two months off. That would have been enough 
uh, or relaxing enough. And if you could do a two or three week vacation and, and continue working steadily, obviously that's advisable. So that's my sort of little bit over the top example of bad debt. Yeah. The key is if you're taking on debt, it has to do something for you. That money has to do something for you. So I'm sure anybody listening who's in academic medicine is thinking, I'd love to meet these people that you've all talking about who take two and three year long vacations or even a month or two month long vacations that I know at Hopkins, we can't get our faculty to barely take a weekend off, um, let alone that long. But I get the point. And I'm thinking since a lot of the faculty I know and that I coach and work with aren't leaving, they're working so hard, they may be instead taking money and like renovating the house or um, doing projects around the house or, you know, using it with their kids and their travel leagues and the kids have these expensive sports and hobbies these, these days. And so that's also now leading me down a path of debt and it's kind of, I can't help but go there, but it like the debt of how much time costs us. And I guess that's probably maybe a deeper philosophical question and not necessarily an expenditure of, of money per se, but I'm, cause I'm thinking of faculty I've coached recently. He was like, Oh, I really want to learn more about epidemiology. So I'm thinking of getting a master's. I really want to learn more about, um, you know, preventive health. And so I'm going to get an, an M- MBA or an MPH. And I'm thinking, well, you know, why don't you just read a book or let's go to the YouTube or go to the TikTok and learn about why do you have to get more degrees? Because that time, so that's not only like paying the tuition or, or giving the money to a contractor to make some modifications, but it, there's a time investment. And that, and what does time equate to? Money. So I can't help but think of somehow when we, the, the not so obvious, and I don't know what you discretionary, non-discretionary, the kind of the weird debt that we carry sometimes, which I wonder if that even affects any kind of financial planning or someone with, with your kind of brain, like how do you even put a cost on time and how that impacts the, our egg? Am I too far afield? Am I like? Drunk too much weirdo Kool Aid today. Like, <laughs> I think uh, that, as you as you pointed out, you're starting to get into more philosophical areas. There, uh, the example I gave was was uh, a little over the top. You, what you gave some good examples of frivolous spending when we have these subscriptions that we're we're not paying attention to. There we get, we worked with examples like five dollars a month, which is not very big, but we could take that to other frivolous expenses, which are more realistic. So now turning to more grounded examples, I should have started with this. But if you buy a sports car uh, with your first uh, paycheck or first year's earnings, the first time you're getting a real salary, that uh, is probably not the best use of the money because you're taking on debt to buy this very expensive vehicle, which is going to lose value because it's what's known as a depreciating asset. Every year, every month, it loses value instead of a house or your bond investments or other investments, which on average will rise in value. So making that expensive sports car payment, paying $80,000 or $100,000 and going in debt to roughly that amount can be really, really ill-advised if you have student debt still to pay off, mortgage to pay off, and so on. Another example would be gym memberships that you never use. So maybe you're paying several thousand dollars a month because you signed up for a really nice gym, which you love the idea of, but you're not really using it. And after a while, you're not going at all. And for a year or two, you've been paying tens of thousands of dollars, uh, which have done nothing. And if you've had to resort to credit cards to make those payments, and now you're carrying a balance on your credit card, there's your classic example of bad debt. Oh, okay, that's that's good. So now, yeah, that's bringing it home for me. Now I'm thinking of 
um, recent experience with some women faculty. They're like, oh, yeah, I subscribe for these monthly meal kits or these weekly meal kits and then these monthly clothing wardrobe things to make life easier and all these uh, that makes sense in some kind of level of I'm going to try to save myself time and money during COVID. A lot of people got a lot of things delivered. And it made sense because of the quarantining and the health factor and the unknown. So it'll be easier to have food and clothing and equipment and supplies and home-based whatever, whatever. But now you're right. When abs were shifting out of that and the fact that they're seeing they're throwing away food and they're not wearing those clothes and it's they're having to return things, that all that stuff kind of turns into a, wait a minute, this is a kind of a moment to, you know, as you put it, kind of like reassess, not only annually, but maybe regularly. What, where, where are we bleeding out? Where are the cracks in the windows, if you will, using a metaphor of like winter, where are we losing heat? Like this may not be, we don't have a window or a door wide open that snow's blowing in and hot air's going outside in the winter, but it's just enough of a crack that we're losing efficiencies, that we're not being as smart as we can. And so maybe let's, let's kind of scale back on those things. And then, and then that kind of me, leads me to the philosophical thing of, where good mentoring and coaching and communities like this, where we help each other and support each other in peer groups to find those blind spots of where we're losing time. Again, time as an investment, as time as a commodity that um, our, our metaphorical um, burnout egg, maybe not the nest egg, but some that egg is kind of be being overwhelmed with the debt of time. And we can reassess that periodically and go, wait, where am I? Where's the time suck here? And that's costing me money and then um, burnout and well being and all that kind of stuff, too. So, as usual, you've all, you're, you're, you kind of always plant these wonderful seeds that um, help me, me think of other ways to ap- apply what you, what you always had to teach us. Good stuff. Uh, perhaps we should uh, move to some of the investing basics topics. We've, yeah. we've touched on those already. But I think there are some things I'd like to share with folks which I think will help them. It is important to have a basic understanding of investing because we've already touched on a lot of activities or decisions that we need to make within our households that are effectively investing. Like, where do I put my money? Is it age-based funds? Is it something else? Do I, instead of using age-based funds, do I do this in more hands-on? Do I decide where to put my um, investments in terms of which asset classes, stocks or bonds or cash? and so on. So all of these are really, really important decisions. As already noted earlier, none of this is rocket science. Yes, it often is very confusing to people, and there are a number of reasons for that. Like in any field, it's got its own jargon. We use Greek letters, so it literally is a foreign language, some of it. Uh, And like in any any, um, industry or uh, area, there is a benefit to the professionals who earn their money in that space from wanting us to think that it's complicated because then, of course, we'll pay their fees rather than doing it ourselves. So there are a number of factors there. In addition to that, there's the media that's constantly bombarding us with noise, noise everywhere that makes things seem ubiquitously noisy and confusing and intimidating. And it really doesn't need to be because we can choose to play this game. And of course, it's a very serious game, but we can choose to play this game on our own terms where we're not getting caught up in all the hype or the fads, we're not getting confused or intimidated into making decisions that if we were a little clearer headed and were more educated, we wouldn't be making. So again, no rocket science in any of this. If you think there's some rocket science, then you've misunderstood. Maybe someone has tried to confuse you again because they may benefit. And this is one of the saddest 
aspects of personal financial planning is that our system at the political and legislated level is not really designed to protect consumers so much as it's designed to protect corporations. That's disappointing. That's the reality. And that is one of the main reasons why I really push this education, because effectively, if we're saying the government hasn't seen it fit to protect us, then we have to do it ourselves. One way to do that is find someone you trust and outsource all of that work to them. And that's great as long as that's the right person, right? They have the right knowledge, the right skills, and they're charging fair fees. That's great. You're one of the lucky ones. But how do we tell that we found the right person and not end up in a horror story where either they make bad decisions for us or on the margin, there aren't many people who would do this, but you know we, we may run into people who are ultimately crooks. So we need, to, regardless of our circumstances and preferences, we have to know enough to find a good person to hand things off to. But ideally, we wouldn't do that. We would do more on our own. And then we rely less on others. We don't have to give them custody of our accounts and our nest egg. Instead, we have full control and so on. People fall in various uh, locations on that spectrum of do-it-yourself on one end to uh, outsource fully to, to another. My task, in a sense, in life, I suppose, is to try to push people more to the do-it-yourself side, or at least to give them the knowledge to uh, to outsource uh, from a position of strength. So important concepts when it comes to investing. Investing is all about taking risk with a view to obtaining some sort of a reward or return. We must make all investing decisions, one might argue if we're going back down the philosophical path, that any decision we make that's an involved risk has to take to find a balance between the risk that's being undertaken and whatever the reward or return is. The professionals in this space have a huge amount of interest in our motivation in only focusing us on one of those dimensions. So the folks who want to sell us asset management advice, who want our money so they can invest it on our behalf, they'll seduce us in subtle ways by telling us about all the great returns we can get you if you just give us some of your money. Your friends are going to be jealous. You're going to be making uh, more money than anybody else. So buy the, the house you want and the yacht you want and all of that stuff. And you, we see this in the commercials that were shown on TV and in the ads uh, and the brochures they hand to us when we go into their fancy offices, right? So there's this seduction that goes on where they're trying to convince us to focus only on the promised returns. We have to be the adult in the room. We have to bring those conversations back to, okay, so what about the risk? What could go wrong? Let's realistically think about what could go wrong. Well, I am comfortable or not comfortable doing this now that I'm seeing both dimensions. Another example is in the case of insurance sales. We know we've probably all been approached to buy life insurance and disability insurance and so on. Here, the agents often will use fear to scare us into buying products, products we don't need or too much coverage, both of which are bad for us because they're a waste of money. Uh, and in some cases, they're not the coverage we actually need that would be best for us and our families. So again, there we have to be saying, well, okay, I can understand that you want me to buy all these things, but do I really need them? Well, realistically speaking, what is the probability that something at this level of damage is going to happen and at that level of damage or loss and so on. So it's important for us to have a better understanding of what the downsides are. And if we have a good handle on the body of knowledge that is personal finance for physicians or faculty members, then we can identify areas of efficiency. So for example, if I know I've already built a certain size nest egg, then there may be certain insurance products or bells and whistles on insurance products known as riders that I no longer need because I already have some amount of nest egg. Or if I have a certain amount of cash 
saved up in my rainy day fund, then maybe I can allow myself to decline some of the frills, some of the bells and whistles on disability insurance, because maybe I don't need my disability insurance to kick in immediately. Maybe I can arrange it so it kicks in in four months or six months. And if I make that choice, I'm already reducing my premiums every month, every year. And that adds up to real money. It could be thousands of dollars. So every time we identify one of these areas where we're reducing our expenditures over 20, 30 years by a thousand or two thousand dollars, I think we're back to the phrase you use. That adds up to real money. So a thousand here, a thousand there. If we're efficient in the way we're we're allocating our money and avoiding expenses we don't need and getting the right products and using them to support each other, then we can sell, we can save tens of thousands of dollars. And if we end up keeping that tens of thousands of dollars and investing it over 10, 20, 30 years, that becomes a much larger amount of money. So that efficiency, which you introduced very early on, is important. Even if the numbers look small, getting in the habit of being efficient and questioning some of those expenses, even if they look small, the sooner we get them off our books and we're no longer paying them, you know, the bigger favor we've done ourselves. And was there any rocket science needed in the discussion we just had? None, right? And this are just complete common sense. You're so comforting, Yuval. And, and I can't help but go to the, um, my stuck with my metaphoresis diagnosis here is, gosh, isn't that what happens throughout all of our careers? Academic medicine, for example, risk and reward, risk and reward. What is the reward for my growing my clinical practice, for writing the grants, for engaging in scholarship, for educating learners? Obvious. What is the risk? How much should I invest in those pie wedges, the practice, you know, the tripartite mission, figuring out that pie? Where do I ship those wedges? Where do I invest my time in which wedge? And that maybe that wedge and time investment will change also as I age through the academic life cycle. And I can be maybe when I've got 200 publications and dozens of R01s, I can be riskier because I'm good. I've got the nest egg solid. So I kind of, I like the way you're talking about this, that that it's comfortable, it's familiar to me, the risk reward or risk return concept in all the decisions we make about, do I take this position on? Do I um, invest my time in this, running this committee or doing that project or building this program or writing that grant? What are the odds of return? And going through that calculus. And how do we do it in academic medicine? Through good mentors and sponsors and coaches and peer coaching. And as you said, gaining trust and working in an institution and with colleagues and with peers who we trust and who are maybe a, a tick above us in the ladder or in the game. And we see what they've done and not done. And we can mirror and model ourselves and learn from their mistakes. So I just see so many parallels. And I just always love the way you explain things because it's, I see the familiarity and it kind of lowers my temperature and my, my anxious presence around thinking about, oh my gosh, you know, I go right away. My brain right away goes to the, I'm going to be the shopping cart lady. I'm going to be living under the viaduct in downtown Baltimore. I just know it. So Thanks for helping me, kind of bringing me back, pulling me back off that cliff, you all. Uh, so other comments to add regarding investing. As passive investors, there are several asset classes or investment types that we should be considering and others we should not be considering. And this is an important distinction. So typically as passive investors, we'll invest through our 403Bs or 401Ks in various funds, 
Again, we want those highly diversified, passively managed low-fee funds. That's important. We can manage those ourselves. We can have someone else do it for us. If someone's doing it for us, again, we want to know what their fees are. We want to make sure they're not too high. Uh, and so within those funds, we may be investing in stocks or bonds. Those are some of the, the traditional asset classes. In addition to that, many of us will be investing in real estate because we will be buying our own home. Some of us may have gone down the path or in the future will buy a second property to rent to others. That can be a perfectly legitimate path to take as long as you feel comfortable with you know, the, the risks and the anxiety that that entails. Of course, it, it does. And then cash is often considered to be that another asset class. We have stocks, bonds, real estate, and cash. Those are really the big four. In addition to those traditional asset classes, which should be the main building blocks in our investments as passive investors, in addition to those, there are some asset classes known as alternative asset classes, which we do not know. These are the more fatty, glamorous sounding, but riskier offerings, things like- Crypto, crypto, crypto. Crypto, exactly, <laughs> right? So we have hedge funds, private equity, venture capital, commodities, currencies, and depending on your philosophical inclination, you may include cryptocurrency there or somewhere else. Right? There's an, an effort by the industry to try to position themselves as a whole other asset class, because if they can achieve that status, then everyone will recommend investments in them because the uh, advisors often will try to get us to put money into every asset class. So we don't need those alternative asset classes. You can do perfectly well sticking with the traditional asset classes we've already described, the publicly traded stocks and bonds, the cash and real estate. That's it. You don't need anything else. So, and we've had, in the meantime, in addition to what I've thrown out there, we've had managed futures, we've had people investing in, um, in asset-backed securities. Those played a big role and were very much a villain in the subprime collect, collect period. Soon after that, I think, is when we had managed futures, which was the next big catchphrase and fad. That didn't take off uh, very widely, but there's always something that Wall Street is pitching. And we don't need it. So just because they're coming to our door and saying, hey, you know, you've got wealth at this level, that makes you an accredited investor. And now you can invest in venture capital or hedge funds or whatever. You don't need it, right? It sounds glamorous and it may feel good to be able to say to your friends, hey, you know, I got approached and now I'm invested in this and this and this. But those are very risky investments. They're the opposite of transparent. You don't really get to see what's in them, and it's hard to understand what they're about. So how can you have comfort that they're doing what you think they should be doing? Uh, they're expensive. The fees are very, very high. Often they're more than 2%. We already talked about the damage the 2% fees will do to our nest eggs. So we have to be very careful And I earlier I mentioned that it's important for us to make sure that we play on the part of the playing field where we are not disadvantaged. I didn't quite put it in those terms, but that's an important phrasing to use, right? If we just throw ourselves into the Wall Street crowd, we're, we're the least knowledgeable investor there, we're the most naive, the least experienced, and we're going to be eaten for lunch and every other meal by these folks again and again and again, which basically means they'll take our money. So it, we have to play because we can't choose not to play. Not to play means we keep all our cash under the mattress. And we know that's bad for us. Inflation alone will eat away at the purchasing value of that. But also, we won't be growing our nest egg fast enough to reach that dignified retirement point. So we have to play, but we can play on our terms where we're not paying the high fees. We're not chasing the fads. We're not trying to time the market. We're staying away from all of that. However seductive and glamorous it seems, and however it looks like everybody is making 
money hand over fist, and we're the only ones who are the fools who are not. What do we just have? We just had a year-long readjustment where a lot of those fatty plays have gone up in smoke. We may have to wait eight to 10 years for the comeuppance to happen, but it does. You can avoid that by sticking to the tried and true path, which we've already discussed, right? Those traditional asset classes. That's what investing for us should be. And you're and you're making me think of another metaphor. Those of our um, friends and colleagues who are listening to this podcast now who are practitioners and clinicians and physicians and surgeons, and I'm thinking that they might be thinking just similar for their, their patients who there's decades and decades and decades of research, certainly it's moving and improving, that just show like the basics of, basics of healthcare and how to do things rather than jumping on the YouTube, TikTok, new crazy bandwagon of some um, kooky panacea or preventive cure for something, something where it sounds all the rage when in fact, if you just come back to the basics of, you know, eat a healthy diet, exercise, sleep, drink water, don't do the bad stuff. It kind of always, doesn't it always kind of boil down to let's just don't get crazy. We don't need all the, the, the nutty kind of crazy things. Um, they, those fads, even I'm thinking now because I'm a big gym rat, those fitness craze fads, they all die out. All the gimmicks and gadgets and tools and workout routines, they inevitably, like fashion, go out of fashion. It's fast fashion. It's fast fitness fashion. It's fast health fashion. But we always come back to the tried and true. Remain calm. Eat a healthy diet. Drink your water. Exercise. Peace out. See you at your next appointment. Don't inject anything weird or insert anything kooky. You'll be fine. Seems like good advice. Yeah. <laughs> Should I uh, turn to sharing some thoughts regarding retirement planning? Please do. Thank you. Dr. Barr, or isn't this great talk, everybody? I just love it. Learn so much from it. Go ahead, Yuval. Roll. But wait, before I dive into the financial aspects of retirement planning, I, we need to acknowledge that retirement planning is not just the finances, right? It's also what are we going to do when we're in retirement? Where are we going to live? So there are lots of other really, really important questions that are related to retirement planning. We will, however, focus on the financial aspects. I just wanted to make that clear. So there's a big distinction between the period when we're building up the nest egg, during which I like to say that we are, during those working years, we're accumulating diverse appreciating assets. That's really the name of the game. Accumulate as many different diverse appreciating assets and make sure you're paying low fees on them as they're being managed over time. That's the name of the game. Once we're in retirement, the focus changes from accumulating assets to managing the assets we have, and to generating income from those assets, from that nest egg, that is actually the money that, that carries us through every month and every year in retirement. So our focus in retirement shifts, shifts from accumulating to stewarding and generating income, because we will no, no longer have that paycheck. So our nest egg has to generate the paycheck, or its equivalent. And of course, when we're in retirement, there may be other sources of income that are available to us, because we could be working part-time, maybe we have some book royalties, we create an online course, we get royalties from that. Um, so there are other sources of income. We may have maybe eligible for a pension. Pensions are less common now, but there are some employers who still offer them. Um, and um, Social Security is another source of income. However, we know that Social Security is troubled. It was never meant to be a primary source of retirement income. That's really important for folks to note. You know, at best, folks now might be qualifying for $4,000 a month 
but that's if you've worked all the right number of years at a high level of income, consistently done that. Um, so most of us won't be at that number. And even if we were four times 12, $48,000, for many of us, that might be lower than the standard of living that we would like to, um, to uh, attain going back to that dignified retirement notion. So I often recommend to people that they ignore Social Security completely when they do their financial planning. And then when you get those extra checks, it's extra, right? And it just uh, helps to, to plug any holes that were in your original plan. And it's better than assuming you're going to get Social Security. And then by the year 2030 or so, we're, we're forecasting that Social Security will be insolvent, meaning that there won't be cash left in it. And the amount being drawn by retirees will be higher than the amount being put in by existing workers. The ratio will be something like 80% according to the forecast. So the working population will only be contributing 80% of what the retirees and disabled folks need to draw out, which means that some tough decisions will have to be made. They may mean that some people who have nest eggs beyond a certain point will get no social security at all. Or it may mean that everybody will get 80% of their anticipated benefits instead of the 100% they thought they were going to be eligible for. Either of those brings me back to my preferred path, which is ignore Social Security. I mean, obviously sign up for it and do everything you need to do mechanically, but just ignore it in your calculations. Not every household has the luxury of being able to do that. I want to acknowledge that. But to the extent that you can, it could be a wise strategy just to, to make sure that you're airing conservatively. Other sources of income can come from investments, of course. I mean, by default, that's what we're assuming will come out of our nest egg, our Bond and stock investments will pay us interests or dividends. When we sell some of those, we may have capital gains. Um, that uh, And all of those income sources will be our investment income sources. We can also resort to what are known as annuities. Folks probably have heard of annuities. They're often now offered through various retirement plans. There were legal changes, legis legislative changes that made some of those products more accessible through retirement plans. That could be a good thing. It's not necessarily a good thing. On the theory side, annuities make a lot of sense because they allow us to get through this uncertainty of, will I have enough money in retirement? Will I outlive my funds if I'm just drawing down my nest egg? Instead, what you could do is you take your nest egg, put a lump sum into an annuity, and every month you receive income from the annuity until you die. So that uncertainty about whether we're going to outlive our nest egg because we live too long will be removed. We have that peace of mind. However, many annuities have far fees that are far too high. So we're sort of shooting ourselves in the foot. And that's why practice deviates from theory here often too much. And that can uh, mean that we have to be very, very careful if we're opting to put our money into annuities. Because if we die early, of course, we don't get to see that money at all. It just goes away. Um, uh, but in any case, we may not be getting the full value of that money if the fees are too high. So those are some of the, in fact, many of the income sources most of us would anticipate receiving in retirement. And it's important in advance to think about, okay, how much will we need on a monthly and annual basis as a household, as an individual, to make ends meet in retirement? Taking into account that probably our health care bills will be higher, there may be other bills that will be higher, and others that will be lower. We may not need to commute to work, so maybe our gas bill is going to be lower. Maybe we don't need two cars. We only need one car. Maybe we down uh, uh, downscale the, a bigger house into a smaller house because the kids are out of the house and we're retired. So there are things will change in our budgets. 
and uh, it's important in advance to start sketching out what some of those future budgets are going to look like because it just means that we're more informed. We can prepare in advance. So more can be said. I'll stop here, uh, Kim, in case you want to redirect me. Well, that's I was just going to ask you about the debts. So I liked how you laid that up and like the annuities and preparing and then stewarding that money. And then I was waiting for you to talk about then what happens once we're retired about the debt. So you did talk about that, how um, with proper stewarding and thoughtful planning, one might then take a look at those expenses. And as you're saying, kind of say, well, we don't need this. Let's get rid of that. Change that scale back here. We don't need all the fancy clothes anymore. But then I know some friends who um, have, they anticipated doing A, B, and C, but they ended up doing X, Y, and Z on the debt side. Like we scaled back, but then we ended up doing a big rental project. Or we scaled back on the house, but then we bought a boat. Or we, you know, decided um, we thought we were going to die because I had cancer and now I'm in remission. And now we booked a world, you know, whirlwind tour literally around the galaxy. And so those kind of, um, I guess, somewhat unanticipated or unexpected debts that and then I was going to talk about the health care insurance, because that's to me the biggest thing here at Hopkins. My colleagues and I, uh, Jennifer Haythornthwaite and Cindy Rand, designed a late career next chapter series of four part series for late career faculty members who are maybe starting to think about like we're in our late 50s starting to think about I don't know what's that next chapter look like we talk about identity and purpose and meaning in life and how do I define myself or introduce myself at a party if I don't say I'm a professor at Cary Business School what do you say you know how do you I used to be a a pretty important person and now I'm nothing. So kind of getting around that whole, what is my, what, why do I get up in the morning? What's the whole reason I'm here? So we have a whole thing that addresses those social aspects and psychological aspects of preparing for. But what we don't talk about in that next chapter series preparing for is the financial stuff. So that's why this is such a good tandem pairing of being thoughtful about who am I in late career, in retirement, what is my meaning? What is my purpose? But also then, can I then, how do I plan for that financially so that I'm not, you know, pitching those expenses, but I'm bringing on all brand new expenses that I hadn't figured out. And I thought I was going to be okay, but I had no idea that I was going to lop off the back of my house for $250,000 or uh, I had no idea that we were going to go around the world again. And geez, that really wasn't in my calculations. So that thoughtfulness and I guess it all everything goes back to me you know about always I'm um, you know looking at the, the wisdom and knowledge of other people and that's where it's kind of important to always kind of take a pause and not panic but just be be thoughtful and measured about how we do and prepare for everything right so the the phrase you used is unexpected debts and I think that is worth talking about a bit. As you said, you decide to add an addition on the house or go around the around the galaxy or, or world tour, uh, whichever options available to us. Uh, and they're unexpected because we didn't think of them five or 10 years ago, but they're completely conscious decisions. The best thing we can do is before we impulsively do them is look at the numbers. And that is what always brings me back to why do we want to have a document that's tracking our net worth? Every year, we make sure we're updating the value of our assets and debts, and that allows us to calculate the net worth. And similarly, there's another document, which is our budget document, and we should be updating that. We talked about that. Trim those unnecessary expenses. Make sure we understand, are we are we balancing the budget or not? 
So if I have a good up-to-date budget document, especially my forecast into retirement version of the budget document, I can now do a what-if analysis. I can do a scenario of, okay, if I spend $250,000 of lopping off the back of the house, uh, I think I'm, I'm trying to use the words you used, well, what impact is it going to have when I'm expending $250,000, a quarter million dollars in extra debts or cash that I had lying around, which I could have done something else with? And when I'm now looking at the numbers, it'll become very clear whether that is going to get in the way of us having our dignified retirement or or is it okay, right? And that's exactly why we have these documents so that we can check, so we can ask these questions and in advance in an organized fashion from a position of strength before taking on the debt, we can decide whether it's advisable or not. And maybe the decision is, you know what, we can't do $250,000 worth of renovation, but we can do 65,000. So let's decide what's most important to us. Maybe it's the kitchen, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, and let's do that. And that's great because now you're you're doing something that's going to give you satisfaction and pleasure and make you feel like you you know you've improved the house and it's more fun to live in. Um, but you haven't gone overboard. Unknown. You're not losing sleep. Yeah. And you, exactly. Now you're not losing sleep over having created this hole in the ground uh, of where death. you think I got to get another part time gig because I've planted myself in a hole here. And and you know you know. At first, I mean, you, we start talking about this thing, you know, this whole topic of finances, you think, oh, I'm thinking, of course, I always project faculty members are so busy and they have no resources to do the job that they're supposed to be paid to do. And now we're saying, and you, by the way, you should also be doing this. And I think, oh, they're like, oh, help me, please. Really? Another thing I have to do. And it's almost the same feeling I think of when I have my annual review is due. I'm always like, oh. I have to do my annual review and I got to do the form and I got to fill out all the stuff and I get all harumpy about it. I'm thinking, isn't obvious what I'm doing? I'm obviously doing a lot of work. I'm fine. I really resent having to do this. And it's almost the same thing like when you resent having to put the nine volt battery in the smoke alarm, there are certain things you just got to do every year. And when I get into the annual review, I'm like, oh, well, that's okay. Pretty good. Or what are you thinking? That was crazy. Pam. I was never going to do that. Why did I put that as a goal for next year? I'm not even close to that. That's all. But that assessment, that annual review, just like our health, our smoke alarms, the annual New Year's resolutions, the sit down, family meeting time, fitness, whatever the goal is, it's so important, even though it's onerous and it kind of annoys us. Once you're into it, you're like, oh, that was pretty good. That made sense. Like you said, you get control over the boogeyman. Now you see, you, you see, at least see where your blind spots are. You, you, you have better just control and that confidence that comes with knowing that like, I got my house in pretty good order. It's not perfect, but I have at least a tool that reminds me where am I going? Am I getting closer? Or, or and then it helps you recalibrate too. Like you said, um, if I, my annual review, I said I was going to do these 18 things and I only did 12. All right, Kim, well, next year, let's kind of be a little bit more thoughtful about that. And it's just so, it's just smart, good hygiene, good life hygiene, right? That gets us to that dignified place. I love it, Yuval. So I, I love the way you describe that uh, and describing the dilemma of, well, I don't know, it's a drag to do this and I, I know it's a pain. There are some things that we need to do, but there is also a significant value. There's a prize at the end of this path. I can almost guarantee that every single household, if they did a deep dive into their finances, they will find money there that they're wasting thousand dollars a year, whatever it is, they're going to find that money. So an example, I have a good friend who was on the faculty, a different university in California. And she said, you know, I just have this feeling. I've had this feeling for several years that I'm not effectively allocating money in, in my 403B. 
So we went into it together and I read through it quickly. Of course, it's easier for me to do because I'm familiar with this. So it took me less time than it would have taken her. But quickly I realized that she was accepting the default settings. So money was flowing into not funds she chose, but ones that were just the default settings. And they happened to have higher fees than ones she could have chosen. So we just switched the money over and changed the, the ongoing instructions on where money should go in when it's coming in out of her paycheck. And we saved her $1,400 a year just on fees. Oh, and you all by, by 20, 30 years. Oh my gosh. And what a friend you are. And this you're, you're giving a beautiful example of peer mentoring, coaching, sponsoring, just this whole idea of having that gut instinct. It's, so, it's telling you something. That is the voice we have to listen to. And then just turning to your left, turning to your right, virtually or in three dimension with human beings and say, well, I noticed that you seem to have crank out, you know, 10 publications a year. How do you do it? Let me sit down and look at your calendar. I'm really good at calendar management. Show me your calendar. And I'm saying not my examples, Kim Skrupski, because I inherited Scarlett, my mother, Scarlett Elaine. Thank you very much. May she rest in peace. I've inherited all of her uber organized, hyper productive DNA. I could sit and look at your calendar, fill in the blank, faculty person listening to this, and I can show you where you're losing money, meaning time and plan. I can show you where you're losing time. I can look at your morning routine. I can I can show you where you suspect you're wasting time, spinning wheels, losing time, it being inefficient. I can show you because I I look at that. That's my that's my jam, right? So it's the same thing. It's the idea of when you have that suspicion gosh that little moment of her being honest with you and being humble and saying you've all i suspect let's just do that with each other like you see somebody who's doing something well you ask them you know can you at the elbow show me can you sit, can i buy a cup of coffee and you give me some tips and hints of how you're doing stuff can save you thousands and thousands and not to mention just the peace of mind and the return that return and reward is just you can't measure that when people feel like yeah, all right. I feel good about myself. I'm owning my life. Oh, what a good friend you are. Dr. Yuval Bar-Or. Isn't he wonderful? Again, this is a, he's a triple header here on the Faculty Factory podcast. Go to his website, pillarsofwealth.com. Pillars of Wealth. And you will find him on the facultyfactory.org website. His episodes number 64 and 149 in the past. Lots of good stuff there. Yuval, as usual, Thank you for serving this community. We appreciate you. Uh, don't quit on us. Uh, keep delivering all your great content to us at here Hopkins and now throughout the galaxy. <laughs> Always a pleasure, Kim. Thank you. Till next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.